1015 WHMP. And for those of you driving, while you're listening, drive carefully. It is a little slick out there with this cold rain. Welcome to the Afternoon Buzz without buzz. My name is Brian Adams, and I'll be your host for this hour. Uh, I do the science and sustainability piece on Thursdays at 4 o'clock. And one thing I love about doing this show is how many activists we have in the Valley and how fortunate we are to live in such a wonderful place where we are so involved in so many social uh, issues. And we are so fortunate this afternoon to have one of those great activists with us. Dr. Ira Helfand is a member of the International Steering Group of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. He, that, was the recipient, that was a group that won the Nobel uh, Peace Prize in 2017. Uh, he is a co-founder and past president of the Physicians for Social Responsibility. He is a uh, retired emergency room doc and critical care doctor as well. Ira, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm so impressed with your work around the abolition of nuclear weapons. I want to thank you for that. Uh, and I am thankful now, perhaps more than in a long time, for the work that you're doing because of this threat of nuclear war, which seems more real than it has in quite a while with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So let's start immediately with that. How concerned are you that Putin could order a nuclear strike in Ukraine? Well, I think we all need to be very concerned about that possibility. The situation in Ukraine is extremely unstable, and the possibility that this could lead, either by a direct decision or by an unplanned escalation, to the use of nuclear weapons is very real. And we are probably closer to nuclear war than we have ever been. Uh, some experts like William Perry were saying before the Ukraine invasion that we were closer to nuclear war than we were during the Cold War. And now, since the Russians have invaded, and given the numerous explicit threats to use nuclear weapons that have come from Moscow, I think we have to understand this is an extraordinarily dangerous moment. And one of the things that's most striking about it is that although there has been something of an uptick of awareness of the nuclear danger since the invasion last February, this possibility is getting nowhere near the attention that it should be receiving, given how huge the threat is. Do you feel that a nuclear attack by Russia in Ukraine could escalate into a nuclear exchange with Russia and NATO or with Russia and the United States? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the past, when NATO or the United States have conducted uh, tabletop war game exercises, any time a single nuclear weapon was used in a conflict between NATO and Russia, it always escalated to all-out nuclear war. Now, the situation in Ukraine is a little bit different Ukraine is not a part of NATO, and it doesn't have nuclear weapons. And so one could imagine scenarios in which the Russians used a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, and it did not escalate. But I think one would have to be very, very worried if that happened. Uh, we haven't crossed that threshold since Nagasaki. And I think once any country uses a nuclear weapon in warfare, uh, all bets are off as to what happens next. I'm... I'm being fearful just hearing you speak about this because it's such a scary scenario. Um, I know President Reagan once, I think with Gorbachev, famously declared a nuclear war cannot be won and must therefore never be fought. Yet here we are talking about the increased likelihood of using nuclear weapons. And here we are in the United States continuing to upgrade our nuclear arsenal. How in, a, in the world when the threat of nuclear war is just so transformative, so appalling, so disastrous, do we still have nuclear weapons? Well, because we never really took to heart what Reagan and Gorbachev said. They were exactly right. Nuclear war can never be won, and therefore it must never be fought. But the United States and the other eight countries which have nuclear weapons have continued to base their security policies on the false assumption that nuclear weapons somehow or other made them safer. And they've, that, that's been the position of all of them. Uh, the United States still has close to 6,000 nuclear warheads, and our leadership believes that somehow or other we're better off for having these weapons. We're not. You know, as General Lee Butler famously said back in the 1990s, there's only one thing in the world the United States military cannot protect us from, 
and that is nuclear weapons in the hands of other countries. And so it must be the highest security priority of the United States to eliminate those weapons. And the only way we can do it is if we're willing to give up our weapons also as part of the bargain. That should be the centerpiece of U.S. nuclear policy, searching for an agreement, seeking an agreement with the other eight nuclear-armed states for a verifiable, time-bound, enforceable agreement to eliminate their nuclear arsenals. And it's not. The U.S. has never seriously pursued the elimination of nuclear weapons, and that has to change. And that's, you know, the Back from the Brink campaign, which I'm working with currently, um, which has grown from its origins here in the Valley five years ago to a significant national campaign. That's the focus of what we're trying to do, is to get the United States to begin those negotiations now with all of the other nuclear armed states. I had a quick question here, Dan. Uh, I hear both of you talk about Ronald Reagan as president. And I'm a little surprised that he had this position on nuclear weapons. I, I would have thought, you know, he could come off as this kind of strong conservative, strong military buildup. But it seems like when it came to nuclear weapons, he knew the, the real danger that that posed that went way beyond, well, you know, what, you know, what is typically written about him as kind of being pro-military and, and, and pro-arm. He, he learned the danger of nuclear weapons. Reagan mm. came into office as the most hawkish president we've ever had with regards to nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And he actually advocated preparing to fight and win a nuclear war in Europe. In 1983, he had the United States deploy missiles, Pershing missiles, in Germany, specifically so that we could launch a decapitating attack against Moscow. And then to his horror, we almost had a nuclear war. And apparently, uh, he was really quite surprised by the results of what he had done and quite shaken by how close we came twice in 1983 to nuclear war. And he had a really fundamental change in his thinking, uh, which is a very important thing because it, it tells us that um, our leaders who currently don't have the best position on nuclear weapons are perhaps capable of changing and capable of changing in a situation like we have now. You know, this is an incredibly dangerous moment. The only time that was probably this dangerous, well, there were two, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the summer of 1983 when we almost went to war with, with the Soviet Union twice. And both of those near misses led in their aftermath to rapid progress to lessen the danger of nuclear war. The leadership kind of freaked itself out it frightened itself, and they realized how close they had come. I just wanted to make a quick follow-up, Brian, and then you can ask questions. Is that um, I think the the one who, one political party that would be able to push this through would have to be a conservative like Ronald Reagan, who I think could gather the political force to convince people, "Hey, I'm very pro-military, but when it comes to this, this is an entirely different uh, mantra." I just think with the Democrats. They're always seen as weak on defense. Politically, I think a lot of them would, would pay some political price, I think, for them to be like, let's get, a new, let's get rid of a nuclear uh, weapon. I think that's an excuse the Democratic Party uses to, to not provide leadership on this issue sometimes. Okay. Um, I understand what you're saying completely, but that's not an excuse. This should be a bipartisan issue. It was in the 80s when people finally figured out how close we had come to nuclear war. The freeze movement was led in the Congress by Republicans and Democrats. One of the two co-sponsors of the freeze resolution in the U.S. House of Representatives was our own representative, Silvio Conti. Uh, and who was a Republican. Who was a Republican. And there needs to be that kind of bipartisan approach to this. Currently, among the people calling for the elimination of nuclear weapons, Henry Kissinger, the late George Shultz, these were people who were among the most outspoken people in the last decade saying that nuclear weapons must be eliminated. And these obviously are two key Republican leaders uh, of the defense establishment of the last, you know, 50 years. Um, Ira, you talked about the nuclear freeze campaign. And for those listeners unfamiliar with that, that was a mass movement in the, in the United States and throughout the world in the 1980s to secure an agreement to halt the testing, production, deployment of nuclear weapons. And like many mass movements, it had its origins here in, in Western Massachusetts, which is quite cool. Um, is there a peace movement in the country today uh, I just, I, I don't see it. Is, is, is there a resurgence of activism around this issue? Uh, there absolutely is. Uh, and it was growing over the last several years and has really, I think, uh, taken off with increased energy since the Russian invasion of Ukraine made this all so much more real to people. Uh, the movement is nowhere near as strong as the freeze movement was by 1982 and 1983. It's nowhere near as strong as it needs to be. But it's kind of in the same position that the freeze movement was in 1978 or 79, just a few years before its peak moment. 
Um, it's, a, a, it's now a national movement. Uh, Back from the Brink uh, has secured resolutions calling for the U.S. to negotiate the elimination of all nuclear weapons in 70 cities across the country, including uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Honolulu, Salt Lake City, Tucson, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Minneapolis, Chicago, St. Paul, Washington, D.C., Boston, Philadelphia. Big cities. Major cities yeah. around the country. Seven state legislative bodies have endorsed this campaign. Wow. And um, it, it, there's, some, there's some real substance there. It needs to be much larger, and we need to build up this movement very quickly. But the increased concern about nuclear war occasioned by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, is providing new energy to this movement. And the question is, are we going to be able to build a movement quickly enough to get rid of the weapons before the weapons get rid of us? And that is an open question. And we'll get back to that uh, later. I want to get back to this um, w- when we're at the brink of nuclear war. I think most people are familiar with the Cuban Missile Crisis, but 1983, you're saying we're very close as well. What what were the events in 1983 that, that triggered this well, uh, near catastrophe? There was a growing escalation of tension between the United States and Soviet Union, uh, fueled by the nuclear arms race in the early 1980s. And in the summer of 1983, we deployed Pershing missiles in Europe, as I mentioned, to be able to launch a preemptive attack against against Russia, a first strike against Russia, and the Soviet leadership was 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 appropriately disturbed and frightened by this, and they believed that we were planning to to launch uh, a nuclear war. Uh, in September of that year, there was a major false alert, in which Russian radar station picked up incoming they thought incoming U.S. missiles, uh, and a Russian. Uh, military, uh, the commander of that base, chose to violate his protocols and not report this radar sighting. Had he done that, it almost certainly would have led to a nuclear war. He was court-martialed for this afterwards, um, but he's now referred to as the man who saved the world. That was in September of 83. In November, uh, NATO carried out its annual military exercises in Europe, and the Soviet leadership had decided that if, during a NATO exercise, the leaders of the uh, NATO countries left their capitals and went to their command posts, that would be the signal that they were actually planning to use the maneuver as the cover for launching an attack on the Soviet Union. It was part of the plan for the exercise that year. All of the leaders of the NATO countries, except Reagan and Washington, left their capitals and went to their command posts. The Soviet leadership concluded that NATO was about to launch nuclear war and they decided to go first. And they sent out a directive to the KGB stations across Europe to destroy their documents and get out into the countryside and await further orders. And very fortunately for the world, the KGB uh, agent in the United Kingdom was a double agent who was working for the British government. And he was able to get out of the embassy and alert his leader to what was going on. And quickly a communication was established between uh, Reagan and the Soviet leadership, and the situation was disarmed, but it was extraordinarily dangerous. Can I just quickly add, was there not another incident within a submarine where there was supposedly incoming nuclear missiles coming at uh, the Soviet Union. Is there a famous story of this, or is this myth? Uh, no, there, there. I'm not sure about that one in particular. There are, are at least six episodes that we know about okay. where one side or the other thought that they were under attack from the other side. Okay. The most recent was in, in 1995 that we know about. There okay. may have been others. Uh, well after the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Russians again picked up, uh, this time it was actually a, a missile launched by the United States from Norway. It was a, it was a weather rocket. And they misinterpreted it and thought it was a rocket coming towards Moscow. Okay. And the nuclear football was activated. Uh, wow. President Yeltsin was given a number of options, including launching all-out nuclear war, which he chose not to do. Yeah. My goodness. Such, I mean, such scary stuff. I just remember reading uh, in a book about uh, Soviet submarines getting a, a false reading of, of a nuclear attack. And I remember it going down the chain yeah. and it went to the very last person who would give this authorization. And he did some double check or triple check and they knew they had some problems. And went off. The it's brink scary. of catastrophe. It's so, it's so scary. We're talking with Ira Helfen. He is a uh, nuclear weapons abolition activist, uh, member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. He's, his groups have won the Nobel Peace Prize twice, once in 1985 and also in 2017. We're going to be right back after a couple words and talking more about the abolition of nuclear weapons. So stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 
WHMP. It's happening here in the Valley. We're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Looking for the perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit HangarPub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Regardless of the overall rate of inflation, prices at the supermarket set the pace, especially last year. Data Assembly's 2022 Grocery Price Index year-end update reveals the cost of groceries in 2022 surged to whopping 16.3% compared to 2021, where we saw a 6.2% increase. The IRS is warning taxpayers about an uptick in scam calls in which scammers pretend to be from the agency and try to get personal information or even money from those on the other end of the phone. The IRS's biggest piece of advice, hang up. Mercedes-Benz is recalling nearly 324,000 cars made between 2012 and 2020. Water might accumulate in the spare tire wheel well and damage the fuel pump control unit, which could cause an engine stall while the vehicle is being driven. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome back. My name is Brian Adams, and we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Ira Helfand. He is a nuclear weapons abolition activist, a member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and with his groups, a winner of two Nobel Peace Prizes, both in 1985 and in 2017, uh, when there was the successful negotiation of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Ira, you are an ex-emergency uh, room doctor. You are an ex-urgent care doctor. Ex, I mean <laughs> retired, not ex. Um, and then you have this a activist life around nuclear weapons. It just It's a very intense life that, that you live and have lived. And I can't help but think there are emotional pitfalls and perils uh, that come with sort of being on the edge all of the all of the time, both in your professional work as as well as in your activism work. Um, how do you navigate that intensity? And and you seem like a very sane person to me, with a good sense of humor. We were laughing at break. Um, uh, uh, how do you keep yourself sane? Well, you know, in, in talking about the work on nuclear abolition, um, there's a certain compartmentalization I think that goes on in all of us. Um, you know. I go about my daily life as though we were not facing the possibility of, of, of a civilization ending nuclear war. And you kind of have to do that to stay sane. The trick is, is maintaining the balance. We've gone too far in the opposite direction. We have, we have pushed this too much out of mind. People have, have been ignoring, they've been denying the danger of nuclear war since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and I understand why we all do this, why I do this myself, because it's really awful to think about. 
what we need to figure out is how do we worry about this enough that it motivates our behavior, that it leads us to take the action that will end the problem uh, without being paralyzed by fear. And this is a, you know, it's a basic human thing, flight, fight, flight or fight. You know, how, how do you, in many situations, mobilize yourself to take action when you're faced with danger? Um, with nuclear, with a nuclear war problem, uh, I think at the moment, the, the bigger aspect of the problem is not that we're overwhelmed by fear, that we've let the fear in too much. It's that we're not acknowledging the danger. We've really been pretty successful at denying this, and we need to change that. We need to confront the fact that unless we change things, we're going to have a nuclear war. Now, the good news is we don't have to have that nuclear war. This is completely in our control. We can get rid of these weapons if we decide to do it. And here in the United States, it is particularly our responsibility, because we're a democratic country, to make our leaders take the action that is necessary to eliminate these weapons so that we don't have a nuclear war. Um, and the Back from the Brink campaign, um, which we have organized, is, is, is focused on bringing about that fundamental change in U.S. nuclear policy. And uh, there's a lot of information available on the website, preventnuclearwar.org, about how individual people can be part of this campaign, part of this movement, and participate in this effort, which can and will be successful if everyone does their part. I had a quick question. So you were a doctor. How, how did you get so passionate uh, regarding nuclear weapons? I mean, there's so many other political issues. Why this one? Because this is the biggest public health threat that's ever existed. Mm. You know, my, my activism on nuclear war flows directly from my work as a doctor. Mm. Uh, a group of us back in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, studying this question just came to the understanding that if we did not get rid of nuclear weapons, we were going to have a nuclear war. And everything else that we were doing to help our patients was going to be meaningless. Mm. This is the ultimate threat, and it needs to be addressed. We now understand that the climate crisis poses a similar existential threat. Mm. But these two together, they transcend everything else. If we don't deal with these, we're not going to be able to do anything else that we want to do with our lives. And all the good work that doctors and nurses do in the ER and in the hospital and their private practices, it's not going to amount to anything if the whole world ends. And so uh, that, that's the connection. This, and by the way, we have found that it is enormously useful to frame this whole problem as a public health question. Part of the problem is it gets framed as this military strategy question, mm -hmm. and, and, and the, the people who are having the conversation, it's like they're playing chess. Mm -hmm. And when they, start, when they do, stop doing that and start looking at what is going to happen if these weapons are actually used, mm -hmm. they get a totally different conversation and a totally different outcome. Well, it's, a great, it's a great thing to think about, that this is a public health crisis and framing it that way can really change people's perceptions of, of, it, of what to do. It can. The negotiation for the Treaty and the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons succeeded, I think, because we were successful in reframing the whole question. We had a series of conferences about what happens if nuclear weapons are used. What are the medical consequences, the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons use? And when the diplomats and the government leaders started looking at that, they were thinking very differently than when they were playing nuclear chess with each other. Most leaders do not begin to understand how bad a nuclear war is going to be, nor do they understand how likely it is that we're going to have one. They don't share the, 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 the perception correctly that Robert McNamara put forward in the 1990s, former Secretary of Defense. We're not here because we know what we're doing, because we're smart. We're here because, and I'm quoting him, we lucked out. It was luck that prevented nuclear war. Mm. And we got people to understand that and to understand how bad a nuclear war would be then the conversation was very different. It wasn't any longer, you know, how are we going to play this game? It was, how are we going to get rid of these weapons? If you were President Biden, what would you do? I would travel to Beijing and sit down with President Xi and explain to him that unless we do things very differently than what we're doing right now, we're going to have a nuclear war that's going to end civilization and nothing else that we're doing is going to matter. And I would ask him to join me with me in convening a meeting of all of the nine nuclear armed states to negotiate a verifiable, enforceable, time-bound agreement to dismantle our nuclear arsenals so that we then can move on to dealing with the climate crisis. Wow, that's great words for the president and one that we will encourage our listeners to tell our representatives to get to the president. Uh, can you give us that website one more time of how folks can be active or... Uh, be more involved? Yeah, the Back from the Brink campaign website is www.preventnuclearwar, all one word, dot org. 
and there are tips there for activism and what ordinary citizens can do? Exactly. This campaign was designed to allow ordinary citizens to take action. And uh, there are multiple ways of getting in contact with other people who are taking action and things that individuals can do themselves to try to bring about this, this change in U.S. nuclear policy. We've been talking with Dr. Ira Helfand. He is a nuclear weapons abolition activist, a member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, uh, co-founder and past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, and a retired emergency room doctor at Cooley Dickinson, as well as a retired urgent care physician down in Springfield at the Family Care Medical Center. Dr. Helfand, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on and it for is, having and this conversation. It is an honor to have you in the studio, and I am so impressed and thankful for the important work that you've done and continue to do. Stay with us. When we come back, we'll be talking something completely different, talking about jazz. Uh, take five with Ruth Griggs. She'll have a couple guests on. So uh, hang in there for a few minutes, and we'll be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. District leaders in Amherst are talking about potentially delaying the move for sixth graders to the middle school. Superintendent Michael Morris told the Amherst School Committee he's considering recommending a delay until fall of 2026. That's due to a deficit of $800,000 in next year's school budget, declining enrollment, and complicated guidelines from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education to launch the move. Postponing the move, then, would mean sixth graders' arrival at the middle school would coincide with the opening of a new 575-student elementary school for grades K-5 through to replace both Wildwood and Fort River schools. The school committee will continue the discussion at their January 24th meeting. The Jones Library in Amherst plans to have a gender-neutral bathroom once the expansion and renovation is complete. Jones Library trustee Alex Lafarve, who leads the outreach subcommittee, tells the Gazette the design of the restroom will be critical, as people don't want it to feel like a separate women's and men's bathroom. The Jones Library Building Committee is asking for the community's input through both a survey and online forums. A Connecticut man was arraigned in Eastern Hampshire District Court Wednesday in connection to a shooting on Mill Valley Road in Hadley on New Year's Eve. 28-year-old Mark Vitoris of Waterbury pleaded not guilty to numerous charges, including armed assault with intent to murder. Hadley Police Department said the victim, a 59-year-old man, was found conscious and alert with non-life-threatening injuries shortly before 4 p.m. on Saturday, December 31st. He was treated for a gunshot wound to his shoulder. A mix of rain and snow showers will evolve into plain rain showers this afternoon, a high of 42 to 46. Rain tonight, heavy at times, overnight low 36 to 42. Warm tomorrow, 50 to 54, with rain in the morning and then drying out in the afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WA. HMP. Hey, it's Jason with the Weather Channel and SnowCountry.com. One of the best savings rates in America is another reason banking with Capital One is the easiest decision. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. While snowmakers have been working hard this week, thanks to several cold and dry days in a row, pumping out hours and hours of machine snow, helping to freshen surfaces on the open runs and build bases on new trails to maximize terrain for the holiday weekend. Now Mother Nature's topping off their efforts with a little fresh snow, too, in spots. At Berkshire East, 15 runs and 17 for Ski Butternut. That's over three-quarters of their trails in the Berkshires. And what you said, two dozen runs skiing till 9.30 every night. Ski Sundowns on 90% of their trails with action till 10 every night in Connecticut. Stratton back up near four dozen, making snow on East Meadow, Lower Wanderer, and several other favorites. Hey, this report brought to you by Smugglers Notch Vermont. Visit smugs.com and check out more at snowcountry.com. I'm Jason Dean. Hello everyone, Gordon Oliver here. So let's face it, our day-to-day lives always involve money, right? For many of us, money is always top of mind, but here at The Cambridge Connection, we want to help you reverse that trend. Every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP, my co-pilot, Tina Marie, and I bring you a variety of amazing experts who can help you navigate that daily financial maze of life and guide you to a better relationship with your money. Every radio program has a best-of show, so tune in this Saturday to hear The Cambridge Connection Best Of. 
This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome back to the Afternoon Buzz without Buzz. And we're making a switch for those listeners who are listening our first half hour from the abolition of nuclear weapons to jazz. That is quite a switch. Quite a transition. Quite That's a not transition. a smooth transition, no, but it's a transition. It's an abrupt, as abrupt <laughs> as one can get. And to lead us back into jazz, we have, as always, take five with Ruth Griggs. Ruth, what do you have for us today? Oh, I have a, a very special guest who I'm um, honored to speak to from uh, the New York City area. Um, and he also was uh, a guest of ours at the Northampton Jazz Festival this fall. And this is uh, Matthew Fat Cat Rivera, who is um, probably one of the world's greatest collectors of 78 RPM records. I hear that the collection is in the 10, 20,000 range. So welcome to Take 5, Matthew. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Ruth. Um, Thanks so much for, for having me. Well, I know that, um, again, just to remind our listeners that um, with our one of our board members, Scout Opetut, who is now a Northampton resident, she recommended that we have Fat Cat come and spin his rare um, 78s in Pulaski Park during the Jazz Festival on Saturday, October 1, this past fall. And that's just what he did. And he uh, he made a joyful noise uh, there in, in Pulaski Park. And thank you again for coming up. And I just want to, um, you know, encourage more people in our area and our listening area to know about you and the amazing, um, you know, archiving that you do and your shows. And that's what we're here to talk about. So, well, it was a real pleasure to do that show. And um, I have to thank you for doing so much with that festival and inviting me to perform at least to bring the records of these great original performances of jazz there Um, when i started the hot club i was really attempting to address uh, the roots of the music and um, you know to nourish those roots and i i think i wish there were more people doing that so my my hat's off to you for um, taking care of that that part of the jazz scene at the at the festival which was a lot of fun to do well i um you're more than welcome and hopefully we'll see you again um here in northampton um i wanted to just turn to the hot club new york and the hot club foundation if we could matthew um i it's it's a it's a 501c3 nonprofit organization and i'd love you to just talk more about the mission of the organization how people can get involved what it is that you are um doing on a weekly basis at hot club new york right right uh well our mission is pretty simple um to add an access point to recordings that should be easier to access, frankly. Uh, I think, for instance, um, Sony Records, uh, who owns Columbia, the whole RCA catalog, a, a large portion of the music that we're playing at the Hot Club um, has has really dropped the ball on reissuing a lot of this material, especially bringing it into our contemporary age of streaming. For instance, all of Duke Ellington's Victor recordings are not on Spotify, even though there are good transfers that Sony produced for his centennial in 1999. So there's very much a present need to bring these recordings into uh, our current um, hour. And that is where the Hot Club comes in, not only in making these recordings available through uh, the widespread sharing on the internet, but by playing the original records themselves in public listening sessions. So the mission of the Hot Club is to simply add an access point to recordings to pick up the ball where um, the powers that be have, in our opinion, uh, not done what they should be doing, which is to take care of these uh frankly, world heritage treasures that they own. Um, And that's really summing it up. Now, how we're doing that 
is with listening sessions that are free, uh, accessible to all, not only through coming in person to our um, home-based venue of Cafe Bohemia, a historic jazz club at Greenwich Village in New York, but also through Zoom. Um, these sessions can be accessed uh, from anywhere where we're streaming them um, for anyone to enjoy this uh, collective enjoyment of the music. Um, so that's that's really the the, the fundamental uh, um, mission of the Hot Club. Now, to go on just a little bit longer, I'd, I know um, we don't have too much time, but the uh, the the philosophy of the Hot Club, though, is that because jazz is a democratic music, um, it's a, a music that benefits from collective listening and um, democratic listening, meaning you don't have to be an expert to show up. You don't have to be another record collector. Uh, usually these listening sessions for 78s that I've been to in the past are for other collectors, for people who have um, you know, already gotten into this hobby and, and uh, um, already have a lot of rare recordings themselves. Uh, and so that that's another component of the hot club is to make this accessible to anyone, whatever your background is, whatever resources you have or um, whatever uh, your interest in the music may be prior to showing up. Uh, we're trying to convert you to enjoy this, these sounds and to, to maybe hear something that you haven't heard before because we don't really believe in old music, but only music that might be new to you. And the old music that you refer to is music from the 20s to the 50s, right, Matthew? And even earlier, 78s go all the way back to the late 19th century. Oh, um, my goodness. And you have some of those in your collection? Yes, yes. In, our, in my collection, um, some of the earliest recordings I have, which are real treasures, were some of the first records made in Cuba. Um, 1905, Victor Records went down to Cuba, Argentina, and Mexico and recorded the very first um, music audio surviving that we have. And uh, I have some of these recordings. And those are not the oldest in my collection, but in terms of that, that early generation of records, they are some of the very most important um, and they're one-sided at that. This was even before they were putting two sides on a on a record. That didn't start till a little bit later. Oh my gracious! Well, I I we we have about a minute before we're um, going to take a break, and I want to um, just have you mention briefly two things, and we'll come back and talk about it a little bit further. But one of the phrases that I know we used this fall for the jazz festival regarding you know the Hot Club of New York coming here. And which we want to talk about further is the quote, fall in love with the pack and dig the shellac. And given the fact that the first record was produced in Cuba in, in 1905, we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about what that phrase actually means and the history of making these incredible 78s. But we will be right back. Um, and I think we're going to be listening to Yellow Dog Blues which is a 1925 uh, recording by Bessie Smith in the break. We'll be right back. Ever since Miss Susie Johnson lost the jockey league, there's been much excitement. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMT. Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
State Street Fruit Store. What the heck is a fruit store anyway? Well, State Street opened in Northampton in the 1920s as a fruit store, selling local fruit and other produce from the valley. And even though State Street has grown to be much more, deli, wines, spirits, they are still a fruit store. And right now, State Street and their sister store, Cooper's Corner in Florence, are under an avalanche of apples and everything from the orchards up and down the valley. Galas and honey crisps, McCown and the good old fashioned Macintosh, along with pears, plums, and other delights from the orchard. Northampton has always been a fruity place. We are what we eat. State Street Fruit Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in even fruitier Florence. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The HUG plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Frances Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at HugYourMoney.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Welcome back to the Take 5 with Ruth Griggs, where Ruth is talking with her guest, Matthew Fat Cat Rivera, about the classic 78 jazz recordings that he's been collecting uh, for years and years, dating back into the late 1800s. Who knew, right? Who knew? So that, that takes us back to um, the fall in love with the pack and dig the shellac phrase. So, Matthew, talk to us about how the first uh, 78 was made in Cuba out of shellac. Is that right? Well, uh, the, well the, that was not the, um, the first 78 made, but I was just saying that was an example of an early 78 that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 78s are made on shellac. Uh, initially, it's like a compound um, well before vinyl records come in in the, in the 1950s. And um, vinylite, you know, is just a softer material that sounds much quieter, but you have to have uh, a lighter tone arm to play it. Otherwise, the records don't get damaged. So these... Um, these records were really fragile. They broke easily. Obviously, they still do. Um, they're very, they're much heavier. They spin at 78 or thereabouts. And, uh, these flat disc recordings, um, came about in the late 1800s as a way to mass produce audio recording, which had initially been on cylinders. So reproducing a cylinder is much harder than a flat disc, which you can stamp out, you know, as many as, as you like, um, with the right technology. So that, that is the uh, birth of the record industry when we're going back this far. But shellac did, didn't scout tell me once that shellac is something that was left over from wartime equipment or am I dreaming? Shellac is a compound made of um, crushed beetles, actually. The Egyptians used it to encase mummies, um, well, and crushed, it's still preserved. Crushed, crushed beetles point. like uh, John, Paul, and Ringo, or are we talking about the, the actual beetle beetles? <laughs> no, insects. I mean, uh, crushed insects. Um, that's, that's what shellac refers to. But the medium itself isn't really what we're... Um, so compelled by. I mean, there are a lot of groups and people who are interested in the 78s and the format um, 
for us, the hot club, the music comes first. And uh, the reason that the 78s are so compelling is because they sound so good. Um, that recording we just heard from 1925 by Bessie Smith sounds amazing when you hear it from the original record played through on a good sound system. And it's the kind of care that even the institutions who have collections 78s are not playing them for the public um, from the original records. Uh, I came from a world of um, film preservation and, and uh, you know, cinephilia, where, for instance, in New York, you can go to a place like Film Forum or Anthology Film Archives and watch a rare original film print. And I felt like the same space needed to exist for these records. Uh, the digital transfer is a way of making it, um, of reproducing the music and distributing it more widely. But there's something very special in those grooves, and there's something unique about hearing it from the original record. And if you want to know more about Hot Club New York, um, which is Matthew's organization that he leads, um, it, you simply go to hotclubny.org, and you'll see an amazing amount of rec- of 78s that he has for sale, um, and the the not only the the songs and the artists, but you know the labels are amazing to to you know behold. And you can also join in on his um, Monday evening, um, um, you know, Hot Club New York sessions through Zoom. Uh, And you can participate and listen to some of the music that he's talking about here Monday evenings from 7 to 10 p.m., just imagine being participating in something happening at at Little Bohemia Bohemia Cafe in in uh, in Greenwich Village. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, everyone's welcome, and I look forward to seeing you there. Another way that you can um, connect up with what um, Fat Cat is doing on um, on the airways is um, his alma mater, uh, Columbia University, uh, WKCR. WKCR-FM. He has a show, um, I believe it's every Monday from noon to three. Is that right, Fat Cat? That's right. That's right. And that's, um, you can stream that live at WKCR.org if you want to listen to, you know, what Fat Cat is all about and, and the literal spin that he puts on the history of the music that he's playing through these 78s. So, um, and and how did you get involved in this? I know you said that you you come about it through your your love of of cinema and and archiving, you know, old film. But didn't you have a um, an amazing mentor in someone named Phil? I did, and that's uh, Phil Schaff. The motto "Fall in with the pack and dig the shellac" was actually his creating. He was an NEA jazz master. Um, one of the few non-performing uh, um, jazz masters, meaning he's, he was not a musician, but a uh, historian, um, producer, DJ, and it basically did all the work that one can do for jazz other than playing the music uh, or other than playing an instrument. But he was all about the music and he was about the the vital importance of understanding this music for understanding ourselves and where we are in our current moment, um, politically, socially, uh, this music has so much to tell us. And um, uh, there's a whole world uh, waiting for you to, to dig in if you're willing to just simply take the time and listen. Mm-hmm. So it seems like Monday is is the time to to catch up with um, Fat Cat. Um, first, again on wkcr.org from noon to three on Mondays. And if you want to dig a little deeper, um, you can join the Zoom session. These are open record listening um, groups um, at at Cafe Bohemia on Mondays from 7 to 10 p.m. And just go to hotclubny.org to learn all about this amazing world of, you know, the history of jazz music and, and other types of music that, um, that Fat Cat is, is really keeping alive for sure. 
Um, can we talk a little bit about um, another another tune that I think we're going to be playing in a few minutes here on our on our outro, Minor Jive by Frankie Newton. There was something on on your website about Frankie Newton, who's somebody who's kind of new to me. But what was his era, and and tell us why you chose this piece. Frankie Newton is one of the most overlooked um, pioneers in jazz history. He's a trumpeter who uh, came up in the 1920s and played trumpet on Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. He recorded with Bessie Smith, and um, he was an experimenter and a creator on the instrument of the highest order. Uh, he also was a communist who had leftist political views and was not afraid of expressing those, which um, during the uh, Red Scare of McCarthyism during the 1940s and uh, early 50s, he um, was effectively uh, left without employment and moved to Boston where he was gigging on and off throughout the 40s. But died uh, in 1954, another victim not only of the uh, social conditions of the country, but of the own um, disinter- of the larger disinterest and in, in what, you know, the jazz musicians of that time were doing. Um, so I think that Frankie Newton's a hero of mine and someone I've really tried to champion that legacy uh, over the years. Um, and Minor Jive, which he recorded on his 1939 Bluebird session, is a stunning work. Well, then I think maybe we want to take a listen, um, and we're going to tee this up, dancing to tee it up. But again, lovely speaking to Matthew Fat Cat Rivera, hotclubny.org, if you want to learn more about this incredible world. And now we're going to hear Minor Jive by Frankie Newton. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Ruth. Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. so excited about our next show when our guest will be Tracy Kidder, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Mountains Beyond Mountains and Soul of the New Machine, whose new book is Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people. Tracy Kidder will be our guest Friday at nine o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman, weekdays at nine and again at five. WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. 